Well, good morning. I want to ask you to be praying for our senior pastor, Chris Rudell. He has had a uh, had back problems for a while, and they aren't getting better. So this week he went in for an MRI, and he discovered that uh, they want to do surgery um, on a ruptured disc, and uh, they wanted to do it Saturday, yesterday morning. He wanted to, he decided to put it off because Becky, his wife, just had surgery a week and a half ago and is recovering from that. So we really need to be praying that God would work there and uh, bring healing to him and and give him wisdom and when to have this surgery. Um, our desire, of course, is that God would heal him, but uh, God sometimes chooses differently than we ask. So let's take a moment and pray together as we begin. Lord, how good it is to give thanks to you, to sing praises to your name, to show forth your loving kindness, acknowledge your greatness, your faithfulness, and all the things we've been able to do this morning. We give you praises. The great God is the Messiah, is the chosen one, the anointed one who came for us. Lord, we pray for Chris and Becky this morning. We pray for Becky that her Recovery would continue to go well, and you'd heal her quickly from her surgery. And we pray for Chris, Lord, in his back. Thank you for calling him to be our senior pastor. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen him and you would uh, give him wisdom to know when to do the surgery. Or again, Lord, our desire is that you would heal him, and we ask that you would. But we submit to you in your will. We thank you for the Hadleys and how you've called them to, in their retirement years, to minister full-time in your name. And we pray that you'd provide for them financially and uh, in every other way, that we as a body would support them and send them out with joy and that you'd use them mightily in that area of western Washington where there is such a great need. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Speak to us now through it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great struggles I have in my Christian life, and I believe it's common to all of us, is that we desire certain things. We desire for God to work in certain ways, and yet He has a mind of His own. <laughs> he chooses to do differently than we ask. We just prayed for Chris's back to be healed. Our desire is that it would be healed. Yet God may choose not to heal him miraculously. He may choose to have him go through surgery and the struggles of that and the time that would take away from the ministry. We don't always understand what God does and we don't know how to respond when he, re- when he responds those ways. I heard a story recently about a little boy who was at a birthday party and uh, the cake came out and he'd been eagerly awaiting that and he said... I want the biggest piece. And his mom said, Brian, it's not polite to ask for the biggest piece. And he looked at her real confused and he said, well, then how do I get it? (laughs) See, when God doesn't give us what we want, we sometimes wrestle with that and we think, well, then how do I get it? (laughs) Maybe not by asking, do I need to get my act together? What do I need to do, God, to make my life work? doesn't seem to work very well. Well, if you struggle with that, as I do, you're in good company. Did you know that the mighty men of God throughout the Scriptures, men and women of God, wrestle with that? Just some examples. How about Moses? 
who asked God, please let me enter the promised land. God said no. David, whose son was ill and dying, said, please heal my son. I'm the one who sinned. Please heal him. His son died. Paul, who prayed, he says three times that the thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, might be taken away. And yet God chose not to take it away. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, who prayed, If it be possible, Lord, let this cup be taken from me. And yet he had to drink it to its fullest. You see, we struggle with that because life in a fallen world is difficult. And we were built for heaven, yet we live in a world in which it's far less than heaven. So we struggle. And God gives us far less than we desire or different than we desire so often. I think it's partly because he's so committed to us knowing him rather than clinging to the blessings that he gives. But that's difficult and we struggle and we wrestle with that. Well, this morning we are looking at a passage in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, where Jesus proclaims himself to be Messiah. He announces to his own hometown synagogue, that he is the Messiah. And yet the people react to him because he does not come as the Messiah that they want or demand or expect. You see, they have the same problem we do of wanting God to be a certain way and then he is unpredictable. We can't seem to figure him out. Sometimes he just doesn't make sense. So let's explore this passage together, Luke 4, starting in verse 14, and learn, I believe, some wonderful things about how we can respond when God doesn't make sense. Let me begin by reading the first three verses. Verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Let me set the context just a moment. He Remember last week, David Roper taught about the temptation in the wilderness, and Jesus just went through the temptation. Now he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And was as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now before we go into what he actually said and how he describes himself as Messiah, as the chosen one, It's important, I think, to understand the context here of his audience. He walks into the synagogue and they're gathered there. The Jews are gathered there. It says this was his custom. This is the synagogue where Jesus grew up, where Jesus heard the scriptures taught, where he learned the scriptures. He had to learn and grow, even though he was God. In his humanity, he had to learn the truth. And at that time, the people had a certain perception of who Messiah would be. Now remember, this is a time in which the Jews had been under foreign domination for 500 years plus. Now it's true they had a brief time under the Hasmoneans where there was some independence, but that became very oppressive. And and, uh, so for 500 years they'd been under foreign domination. It was a difficult time for them. In B.C. 63, the Romans came in took over the entire nation, and they 
were the cruel oppressors of Israel at this time. They'd been dominating them for 90 years or so when Jesus stood up in the synagogue to read. And so the Jews at that time had picked and chosen what the Old Testament has to say about Messiah, and they had a very narrow perspective of who that Messiah would be. For one, they were convinced that the Messiah would come soon because they were oppressed and they didn't know what to do about that, but that he would come only for Israel, to the chosen people of Israel. Now, there's plenty in the Old Testament saying that he would come to the Gentiles too, but they were disregarding that. They were so concerned about their situation that they were convinced he would come for them. And that when he would come, he'd gather all the dispersed of Israel that had been dispersed in all the different lands by Assyria and Babylon and Rome and others. And he would gather them all together and create a mighty nation. And he would wreak vengeance upon the enemies, especially Rome, and destroy them and set up a mighty kingdom that would be strong and powerful, where Israel would once again be the exalted mighty nation it had been under David and Solomon a thousand years before. So as Jesus walks into the synagogue, that's their perception of what Messiah is to be. In fact, they prayed every day. The daily prayer of a first century devout Jew was this. Proclaim our deliverance by your loud trumpet and raise up a banner to gather our dispersed and gather us together from the four ends of the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord, who gathers the outcasts of your people Israel. It's hard for us to understand the tremendous pull they felt, the the expectation they had, all their hopes wrapped up in Messiah coming to set them free. But that's how they lived. And as I said, though there was much more about Messiah, that he would be a suffering servant, that he would come primarily to deal with their own sinfulness and set them free from that, that he would come to bring all the Gentiles as well and grant them life, all of that was there in the Old Testament, but they chose to disregard that because that didn't fit with their own narrow preconceptions of who they wanted Messiah to be. But you know, it's similar to us, isn't it? And we... We look at our situation and we want God to be a certain thing and so that's what we look at. If we are going through a difficult time, we tend to focus on God's love and how much He loves us and we want His comfort, we want His love. If someone hurts us, we think of them in terms of God's justice. His vengeance. Take vengeance on them, Lord. Be just. We want your justice. But for me, I want your love. You see, we pick and choose what we want God to be towards us sometimes, don't we? And it's been true throughout church history. We've all done that. In fact, R.C. Sproul, Jr. describes the current church in America this way. Too often, our ultimate goal is our own comfort. The scripture becomes a guide to happiness rather than a call to holiness. Christ becomes a cosmic insurance policy rather than a cosmic king. The church becomes a sort of school for successful living rather than the suffering body of Christ. God the Father becomes the great, good housekeeping seal of approval on our life program rather than our very purpose for being. We, too, come with these expectations of how we want God to respond. 
So life is a struggle between what we would like to have happen and what God actually gives us, isn't it? So how does Jesus respond to that? How does he respond when we have these expectations? Well, in the passage, we see how he gently tells them the truth and begins to confront their expectations and begin to show them who he really came to be. So let's look at this. He gives us five characteristics of the Messiah, who he is to be as Messiah to the Jewish people and to us. Verse 17 uh, through 19. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then verse 20, And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Just a note about a normal synagogue service in those days. Normally you would have begin by some prayers, some rich liturgical prayers. And if there was a visiting rabbi who came to town, they would let him do that. They would invite him to come up and, and uh, do the readings and the prayers and all, and the blessings. So they apparently invited Jesus up. He did some prayers. Then he gave a blessing. Someone else stood up and read the law, portion of the law. And then Jesus stood up and read the portion from the prophets. And he chose Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 that's quoted here. Then normally the teacher, the rabbi, would sit down and then expound on it, give a sermon based on that text. So that's what Jesus does here. And he begins with a passage in Isaiah 61, as I said, that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The first thing he highlights about the Messiah is that his ministry is to be to the poor. I believe he's talking about the financially poor, yes, but he's talking about more what he described in the Sermon on the Mount, the poor in spirit, those who are desperate, those who are needy. He says the Messiah is not for the arrogant who demand that God come through in a certain way, who demand that God exalt me because I'm a chosen person of God, but rather it's to those who are needy and weak and desperate who know that they need him. Philip Yancey, in his new book, The Jesus I Never Knew, talks about the Sermon on the Mount and says, one commentary translates the first verse, Blessed are the desperate. Jesus really believed that a person who was poor in spirit or mourning or persecuted or hungry and thirsty for righteousness has a peculiar advantage over the rest of us. Philip Yancey goes on to describe some of those advantages. For one, the poor know that they are in urgent need of redemption. Two, the poor know not only their dependence on God and on powerful people, but also their interdependence on one another. Three, the poor rest their security not on things, but on people. Four, the poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance and no exaggerated need 
of privacy. Five, when the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news and not like a threat or a scolding. And six, the poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality because they have so little to lose and are ready for anything. Human beings do not readily admit desperation, but when they do, the kingdom of heaven draws near. So Jesus says, the Messiah has come for those who are needy, those who are poor, those who recognize their need for a Savior constantly. Then secondly, Jesus highlights some things in what he reads here. Actually, he quotes Isaiah 61, or he reads it, but he leaves out two verses, two sections. I have to ask myself, why did he leave it out? Now, it was not uncommon for a rabbi of that day when he read a text to change it a little bit for a point, to make a point. And that's what he does here. Right in the middle of what he read, he left out a verse that says, He has come to bind up the brokenhearted. I ask, why? If he came for the poor, why would Jesus leave that verse out? To bind up the brokenhearted. And I suspect it's because, you see, what we normally want from God is for him to deal with our pain. We all have it. We all suffer. We all struggle. But if that's our focus of who God is, that he came primarily to make me comfortable and to deal with my pain, then I will miss the bigger picture of what he really came to do. Because what he focuses on and what he leaves in this passage, Jesus, is that he came to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden. In other words, to set free those who are enslaved and blind. Spiritually, I believe. Jesus what came as the Messiah to deal first and foremost with our sin, with our enslavement to sin, rather than with our pain. Does he care about our pain? Absolutely. But he also knows that the primary source of our pain is sin. And so he wants to get at the very root of the problem and deal with that. And that's one reason we struggle so much with what God does and why sometimes he doesn't make sense because our agenda so often is for him to deal with our pain. But his is to deal with the deeper issue in our lives, to transform us and make us like his son. The other passage or the other verse he leaves out is at the end. Jesus stops with, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But if you read the passage in Isaiah, it says, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and vengeance upon his enemies. Why does Jesus leave that out? That would be exactly what the Jews were waiting for. They knew this passage. They were just waiting for that last verse. Yeah, vengeance. That's what the Messiah is coming for and we can't wait. And Jesus leaves it out. I think they must have been stunned by that. Because that's what they were looking for. That's what they were expecting. Jesus says, no, it's your sin I long to deal with. That's what I came for. Vengeance will come, but way down the road. So he focuses on 
these things first. His ministry would bring freedom from sin and and freedom from spiritual blindness more than the personal healing and vengeance that we want so often. You see, our sin is a bigger issue to God than our pain. And that's why he must proclaim himself to be a Messiah that will deal with that. Then as it goes on, notice what he said in verse 21. They're all watching him now. He sits down and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He wants them to know that he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of what they long for. And I think he's saying more than just, I'm the Messiah, guys. I'm the one. I think he's saying, I'm the fulfillment of all that your heart longs for. All that you dream of. You're looking for a mighty, speaking of the Jews now, a mighty king to come and exalt you and set up a wonderful kingdom. But what you need is me. I'm the fulfillment of what you're looking for. I've told the story earlier of when I, uh, a few years back, when I went through a time of real struggle in my Christian life. Up to that, it seemed to work pretty well. I thought I had God figured out. You know, if I do all the right things, then God comes through and gives me what I want. And I was pretty happy. Then he gave me a time of it didn't work anymore. He didn't meet my expectations. And I struggled with that and I wrestled with that and it went on and on for a year until finally I reached a place of saying, God, if this is Christianity, forget it. I quit. I'm out. It doesn't work. God began to speak to my heart. Fortunately, he didn't let me go. At that point, he said, you've been looking at my blessings for life. Look at me. I am your life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am eternal life. Come to me and begin to cling to me and trust in me. And that's where I first began to learn what faith was about, beginning to trust in him and let go of my demands and my expectations. So he says, I'm the fulfillment. Then notice what happens, verse 22 through 24. They were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Now, I think a better translation, it's in the margin of my New American Standard, they were all testifying of him. I think it's just they were talking about him. And they were amazed. I'm not sure they were impressed in a good way. I think they were just amazed and saying, this is Joseph's son, and he's claiming to be Messiah? What in the world is going on here? And Jesus picks up their attitude. And he says, verse 23, he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. I think Jesus is recognizing in their hearts a demand that he come through, that he do the things they want, that he be a Messiah that if they want miracles done, he'll do it. Prove yourself, Jesus. Be what we want you to be, if you're really God, if you're really the Messiah. Don't we do that sometimes? If you're really God, if you really love me, prove it by changing 
my spouse, by giving me a mate, by dealing with my finances, by dealing with my own depression that I can't seem to deal with, by dealing with this area of sin that, that I want you to change and you haven't done it. And we begin to demand that he come through. And Jesus says here, I won't conform to your demands. The Messiah is not one that is there for your benefit to do what you want. Like the little saying, I love it because I I have to go back to it over and over again myself. God does not exist for me. I exist for him. He's not there to give me what I want. To be a cosmic Santa Claus. Rather, I exist for him to bring glory to him. That's why I'm here. Now, we all wrestle with that. We all do. But that's the reality. And Jesus is proclaiming right here, I will not conform to your demands. I will not be that kind of Messiah. I will not submit to you. Will you submit to me? And then finally, he continues speaking to them as though to just make it clear where their hearts are. Verse 25 through 27, But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the Israelites, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, to a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is getting right at their attitude, their prejudice, that says, yeah, God, you, Messiah, you're here for us. You're here to bless us. And he says, no, I came to bless all people. Anyone who will be poor in spirit, anyone who is desperate, I am open to. Not those who have their own self-centered prejudices that they cling to. The Gentiles are welcome. Now, sometimes I think we are kind of smug and think, yeah, Jesus chose me. I'm a pretty good guy. And uh, I deserve it, you know. But all those other people out there, they're not so good. God has done some things to begin to break down those prejudices in my, my life. I still struggle with them. But one of the ways he did that was he put me in a ministry for a couple weeks in a prison in California where Charles Manson was a prisoner. We saw him there. And I remember standing one time in the main line. They call it main line. It's the main hall. Prisoners would walk back and forth and watching the faces of the prisoners as they went by. And it just struck me how sin was displayed so vividly on their faces. The rage and the anger and the rebellion and the hatred and the sexual, weird sexual things and all the things that that sin is, it was like I could see it displayed on their faces. And I was repulsed by that. And then God, as I stood there, suddenly began to speak to my heart and began to say to me, you know what you're looking at? Your own heart. This is you. You're no different. You are no different than any man here. I've saved you by grace, but you're no different. See, God has to break down those prejudices 
then help us to see that we are no different. We need his amazing grace. We don't deserve it. We're all struggling. We're all in the same boat. So Jesus says, that's who I am as Messiah. I won't fit your expectations, your demands, your prejudices. So the question now is, how will we respond? How will we respond to such a Messiah that doesn't give us what we want? That doesn't make sense sometimes. Let's look at how they responded. First, they began at the beginning. It says they began, they were praising him. He was praised by all. They thought he was wonderful. Wow, this guy's a great speaker. We enjoy listening to him. Isn't he wonderful? Let's listen to him. So he was being praised throughout the whole surrounding area. But then as he began to talk and suddenly proclaims that he is the Messiah in verse 21, verse 22, as I said, I think they were talking about him. They were stunned. Who is this guy? He's Joseph's son. Who does he think he is? So they were stunned by it. And then, as Jesus pointed out, they were demanding of him, you better come through for us. And then finally, we see where they eventually got in verse 28 through 30. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. You see, if we continue to resist him and who he says he is and, know, and cling to our expectations, then eventually we will end up enraged at him, shaking our fist at him. And some of you have done that. Angry at God. Some of you have shown your rage in different ways by basically saying, I don't understand you, God, but you will not have my heart. Oh, I may go to church. I may even do ministry. But you will not have my heart. And in anger, we harden ourselves to Him. Well, I think there's a better way. And that is to be stunned as they were when we don't understand, but then to begin to submit to Him and say, Lord, I don't understand, but You've died for me. You've proven Your love. And therefore, I will give You my heart. I will submit to You as Messiah, as the One who has saved me. You kind of know when someone's this way, don't you? You've seen people, I hope, like that. When something difficult comes, they struggle with it. But eventually there's a sense of quiet submission to it, with a sense of hope that God is doing something good in it, in the midst of it, where it deepens their intimacy with Him rather than pulls them away from Him. Remember Jesus' words in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want this cup. Take it away if there's any way, God. But not my will, but yours be done. Let me encourage you to think about where has God disappointed you? Where has He let you down? Where has He not met your expectations? 
like you so long for Him to do. And let me encourage you to, as this Thanksgiving season is upon us and Christmas season, to give that to Him and say, Lord, I don't understand and I do desire this to happen, but I will give it to Your hands, into Your hands and say, not my will, but Yours be done. Teach me to know You and to let go of my demands and expectations of You. And I believe as we do that, we will truly cultivate a heart of thankfulness and joy because we'll be clinging to Him and not our expectations. Let's pray.